0: What up film fans, how is everybody doing? I hope you're all well, I hope you're all prospering, I hope life is good. Um, just adjust this bit. Right, just to quickly address why I'm wearing a vest, um, I know it seems a bit douchey to be sat here wearing a vest like I'm trying to flex or something, um, I recently got... My first ever tattoo and it's on my arm. So that's why I'm wearing a vest because I didn't want to... It's really fresh. It's like 36 hours old. So I didn't want to wear a t-shirt and rub it and stuff. Um, but also the only vests I have that are like clean are my workout vests. And I thought it might be a good time to put on my cystic fibrosis vest. A few years back, well a while back actually now. I ran a a half marathon in aid of cystic fibrosis. It's something that affects uh, my family. Um, So I figured, you know, if I'm going to wear a vest for the pod, might as well put the cystic fibrosis one on, see if that can do anything to raise a little bit of awareness. So, yeah, that's that. Just wanted to say that straight out the bat. But this is a film podcast. It's chatting script, ladies and gentlemen. So we're going to move on to that sort of stuff. Uh I finally saw Avatar 2 in the cinema as you if you listen to my last pod my um like Christmas and New Year's wrap up, I mentioned that I rewatched the first one in preparation <coughs> for avatar two um obviously because it's still in the cinemas um I don't have access to the footage and things to do like an analysis like I would normally do with films and you know break down shots and sequences and and all of that so um earlier this morning I made some notes from what I could remember because I saw it about three or four days ago now um so I've tried to remember all the sort of talking points that I wanted to talk about on this um first off though I really enjoyed it like yeah I, I really like the Avatar movies I know The first one at least got a bit of shit, Um, not a bit of shit, but just some people were like over it, you know, big fancy blockbusters and all that, you know, and I totally get that, you know, normally I am more inclined to watch, you know, slightly more art housey sort of stuff or maybe stuff that's not considered, you know, huge blockbusters, but I really bloody loved it. Uh, so this podcast is going to be full of spoilers for Avatar 2. So if you haven't seen Avatar 2, Way of the Water, or anything like that yet, um, then you know either stop listening, or if you don't give a shit about spoilers and you're happy for me to spoil it for you, then keep listening, or go watch it. Oh, I would say as well, if you are going to watch it and you haven't seen it yet, definitely watch it in like IMAX 3D. It's the most expensive way to watch it. But ah, oh, okay. I'll, I'll just let's just get into it, shall we? Their use of of three, I think I'm pretty sure I mentioned this on the last podcast. So I'll summarize it quickly. The way that Avatar uses three D, the first one and the second one, they use it in what I consider the best use of it, and what that is is to it's a tool to immerse you into that world so they use it to really bring things to life and set you in amongst all cuz I'm I'm sure by now you've probably at least seen the first avatar um and where there's so many like insane tropical luminous glow in the dark just crazy looking plants and trees and animals and creatures and aliens and all these these different things uh, what it does is it puts you right in the middle of it. So if, with, all the, you know, with all the 3D sort of built around you, that, that's what it achieves. And that's, I think, the best way to use it because it's a world-building tool as opposed to a gimmick, you know, where like, oh, this thing popped out of the screen and, you know, stuff like that, kind of like more lazy, gimmicky style. I think you get what I mean. So I won't labor that point too much. Um, but yeah, definitely, definitely watch it in... In 3D, at least 3D, but you might as well go IMAX because IMAX is the best quality, um, like footage you'll see in a cinema. So you may as well just max out because the the quality of their graphics and their special effects and their cameras and their lighting and everything is such that you're you're almost doing it a disservice if you watch it on you know definitely don't pirate it because you're just going to be like ruining it um yeah you know you I think you get what I mean I think you get what I mean uh so yeah let's let's get cracking like I've tried to make some notes they're not necessarily in like um order of the film sequence but the first one is uh, and again spoilers galore so you've been warned plenty we're getting into it Uh, It has a really nice, like, calm opening montage that basically picks off... Picks off? Picks up straight off from where? That's the sentence I was meant to say. The first one ended, you know, in terms of Jake Sully, as they call him, Jake Sully, and Zoe Saldana's character, um... Shit. Can't remember her name. (laughs) Uh you know, where they were at the end of the first Avatar, um, what they've been doing sort of in the time gap since. And it does a kind of brief, is it a montage or is it a, um, oh, what's the other word for montage? It's not another word for montage, a vignette. Is it a vignette? That's the word, but I don't know if that's, it's either a montage or a vignette, basically a passage of time sort of showing Jake and uh, what is Zoe Saldana's character? Holy hell uh let's find that quickly avatar two oh and what i will say as well for those that are thinking about watching it uh nyatiri that's her name uh there isn't a post-credit scene okay when the credits started rolling i sat there for a bit and i was like let me just google this most people had left at that point and i pulled out my phone and and googled it and um Vin Diesel's in Avatar? Sorry, I'm just, I've am just typed in Avatar cast and just to see Zoe Saldana's character's name and along the list of them is Vin Diesel. Did Groot secretly make an appearance in this? I mean, it would make sense. There's a lot of cool trees and stuff, but eh, I didn't know Vin Diesel was in there. That might be a mistake. He also doesn't have a character name under him. It just says Vin Diesel with no character name. I'm Groot. What was I talking about? Yeah, there isn't a post credit I Googled to see whether there was a post credit scene and apparently there isn't, so I just left. Um, so there might be, but Google says there isn't, so don't waste your time. It's not a Marvel movie. There's not going to be an Easter egg and a set-up for the sequel or whatever. Um, so yeah, it has a nice opening montage uh, going through, like seeing their family grow you know they have their firstborn child and then their second third fourth i think they have four by the end of it and then they adopt um sigourney weaver's child and if you remember sigourney weaver in the first film her human body dies um and they try and while she's dying they try and transfer her life into her avatar via one of the sacred trees of awa awa being the sort of like essentially god or spirit uh, entity of the world of pandora you know um to put it in other terms it would be like the force in star wars or something along those kind of lines um Ewa is is that entity uh and then that ends up the they they test it with sigourney weaver's character it doesn't quite work her body dies she doesn't really come to life in the avatar form So they sort of put her avatar in an incubator essentially. Uh, But then that sort of test of can we do this for the audience becomes really important in the first one because at the end of the first one, Jake Sully completes his transition. He goes from human sometimes inhabiting an avatar through that weird cerebral cocoon thing that they have to like changing his life force over and fully being an avatar or, uh, what do they call them? The Pandora people. The Navi. He goes to fully being a Navi. Um, yeah, so that's why I think they tested it out. But I just thought, oh, that was like a plot device so that we can see it being tested with Sigourney Weaver. And then, so then we can actually see it done fully with Jake Sully and it gives Jake Sully a way to become full Navi. I thought it was just that. But, um, what they do in the second one and so james cameron's been talking about the the writer director of these films if you needed a reminder um he's been saying for years like since the first one oh i have plans for you know i think up to like four sequels and he knows what the stories will be xyz so i don't know if this would have been part of his plans at the time but it's now very much a prominent part of avatar 2 is sigourney weaver's character while she's incubated basically has an immaculate birth you know like like Mary and Jesus like she just becomes pregnant and no one knows how or why Um, but because she's incubated and basically in a coma um Jake and Natiri adopt this Sigourney Weaver child who is actually still voice acted and motion captured by Sigourney Weaver. And I didn't know that until afterwards, because when I was watching it, I was like, because obviously she's fucking blue. So <laughs> there are some of them, especially Jake Sully and Etiri. Maybe it's just because I'm familiar with them from the first one. But when you're watching it, you're, you can figure out which actor it is behind the blue CGI and stuff. Um, but with, I think her name's Kiri, this new like Sigourney Weaver uh Child that they adopt, uh, I was like, wow, she sounds really similar to Sigourney Weaver, but it's like a young sort of version, so it doesn't really look like Sigourney Weaver. Uh, I was like, wow, she sounds just like her. I wonder which act, like, which actress they got to, to play this. Uh, and then I googled it afterwards, and it literally is just Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> so they've not only digitized her to be a Navi, but they've also de aged her as well. Um, but yeah, she she ends up being like a really cool character, anyway, um, and you get like, in that opening sort of vignette, you get a really nice glimpse, at, again, it, it sort of goes straight into um, the world of Pandora, you know, all the cool trees, and the forest life, and all the plants, and all the different animals and stuff, so straight away, I was like, I was like, cool, we're back, we're back in the world of Pandora, this is where I wanted to be, sweet, um, and straight away, I was just amazed by how good the the quality of the, the graphics and everything is, because... I, I, if you listen to the old one or if you didn't listen to the, I say the old one, the, the last pod I did, um, I spoke about how blown away I was by the graphics and the quality of the first Avatar back when I saw it in, when did it come out, like 2009 or something? Uh, and then I watched it a couple of, well, maybe a week or so ago. And I was like, oh, these graphics aren't holding up as well as I thought they might. They do for the most part, but there was a couple of points like... um. It was some simple stuff, like when the when Jake Sully and the other soldiers and humans, like landed in Pandora and and came off of this like, aeroplane carrier thing, and landed in this airfield and were making their way into the military base to get their briefings and things. Just them walking across that tarmac, you could tell that the tarmac was CGI'd. If that makes sense, like the the tarmac and the airport landing area was CGI'd. It was just small moments like that that, you know, some people might not see, some people will see really obviously. Um, It tends to be either people that hate CGI will always look for it and point it out and be like, nah, it looks fake, which is not what I'm trying to do, but it's just, you know, I I pay particular attention to films generally. So maybe that's why I noticed it. I don't know. Uh, But. The my point is the second Avatar movie is like it's back to being the a new sort of uh, peak or new benchmark of the kind of quality you can achieve with CGI and everything like that. Um, yeah, so they reintroduce Stephen Lang's character uh, Colonel Miles Quaritch. I think his last name is pronounced. So he was basically the villain in the first one, you know, the guy with scars on his face, the real hard nose, I'm a soldier, that guy. And I remember seeing, like, when Avatar 2 was, um, you know, being advertised and stuff that it was going to come out and all of that, I remember seeing the cast list and I remember being like, he's dead. His character died. So I thought maybe they would just use him as, like, a... um, like not a throwback <laughs> that's not what I mean a flashback you know a flashback to those sort of times um because I was like yeah he's dead like, like there's 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 no way I would have been satisfied with them going oh he survived getting those two enormous arrows shot into him by Nitiri. is that how you say her name Zoe Saldana's character Nitiri, yeah um There's no way he would have survived. And I would have been... I would have called James Cameron lazy for that. And I would have been like, that's just poor. Like, there's no way you can expect us to believe that he survived those. Because not only does he get shot by two arrows, they're two Natari arrows. Sorry, they're two Navi arrows. And Navi, as we know, are like 12 foot tall. So what's a bow and arrow to them is enormous to a human, right? So he gets shot by two of her arrows at the end of the first one. And they're like fucking four foot long. So there's no way he would have survived that. But what they do instead, as you probably know if you've seen the film, is it, not only was this a cool concept, but they they set out a sort of like a set of rules for it. So what they did is they get him to have basically given his DNA and his memories up to, you know, the point of extracting those memories um, and use his DNA to grow an avatar slash clone of him. So the if you do, if you don't know or you don't remember with the with the avatars, so you have the people and then they go into this cerebral thing, and that connects them to their avatar. But they can only connect to an avatar that shares their DNA. Um, so hence why the those avatars will have four fingers and and a thumb, whereas the other avatars have I think it's it's sort of like three fingers like that and a thumb the the natural Navi will have that um so what they do is they use his DNA to produce an avatar for him and clone him and then they shove all his his memories and his you know training and everything into that avatar so that in the event of his death they can just activate that and they've basically got someone who will be as good as he was up until the point that they did that. So he can't remember things like how he died, because when he gave his memories to that Avatar, he hadn't died yet. Makes sense, right? The film explains it better, and you probably already know this, and if you've seen Avatar 2, you're like, yes, we watched the film, carry on. But my point is, they so they set out a, a sort of set of like laws as to what that means, you know, ergo, like he can't remember his death, um, and then he ends up having a uh, son, um, which was definitely not thought about when they made the first one. Because I remember being like, he didn't fuck anybody on Pandora. <laughs> but apparently he did. He fucked someone on Pandora. They got pregnant. Um, and then the kid gets left behind. When when all the, when the Na'vi kick all the, they call them sky people, but it's the earthlings and the humans. They kick them all off uh, Pandora, send them back to Earth apart from a couple of scientists like that. Um, oh, what's that guy's name? He was in, I think he was in Dodgeball and the other guy with the curly hair. Uh, a few a few nice people like that get to stay because they know they're, you know, not murderers or anything. Um, but this, this kid that he has, they say they justify the kid staying behind by saying babies can't make a trip through a cryo chamber. So I'm like, oh, okay, well, I'll buy that. I'm pretty sure cryochambers not a thing yet in our real world, so make up any sci-fi laws you want for it, and who am I to argue with that, you know? Um, So they justify him staying behind like that, but then it it, that becomes a really cool dynamic because that kid grows up feral with Navi and like acts like them, like does all the like that shows his fangs and and like hisses like and all that sort of shit. so that's really cool. So obviously his family and his allegiance is to Jake Sully and the Navi and, and everybody like that. Uh so when you have like his his father figure coming back in this clone form, even though he is in like Navi form, he's not in human mode, he's in he's blue and he's nine foot tall or twelve foot tall, however tall they are. Um you would think and and the kid's like, oh, that's that's basically my dad. But then the colonel says to him at some point, he was like, technically, you're not my son. Like, technically, we're nothing to each other. Like, your dad is dead. I am just his DNA elsewhere kind of thing. But then, you know, they grow on it and they build it more than that. But the point is, they set out the law to say, like, yeah, technically, we are not related. And technically, I'm not that guy. And I don't know how he died because, you know... So it just... It was cool that they... I like it when sci-fi sets out a rule... You know, like Looper, if you've seen Looper, you know, they they set out what can be done within that world and what the limitations of that world are. I think that's always really important to do with sci-fi or um, even if you're doing some sort of fantasy where there's magic and stuff, it's really important to set out what the limits are within that scope. So that that's my point. That's my long, like, fucking five, ten minute way of saying I appreciate that with these avatar movies they set out what can and what can't be done um anyway i have made some notes and i am going to keep looking down to refer to them so yeah oh i really like the so they've got they basically they they have to leave one of uh, they have to leave the forest tribe because uh stephen lang's character colonel miles is like hunting them down actually this is what i'll talk about first actually so that rivalry so the whole kind of like um colonel miles's whole like aim for the film is to get revenge on jake sully and um natiri for killing him um like that's his whole thing whereas there's an overall aim of the humans in the film to conquer pandora because earth is dying they want to conquer pandora um and you see things as the film goes on like when the ships land they set that they're um what do you call them? The thrusters on the ship. The thrusters like burn all the forest to smithereens for miles and miles, and kill all the animals and destroy all the foliage and the trees. And it's really heartbreaking. And you're know, like me. i as I've said on other podcasts. Like I'm a vegan. I'm a bit spiritual. Um, like I care a lot for animals and nature and everything. And I, you know, I'm not a perfect human by any means, but I try and like reduce my carbon footprint and recycle and you know all all those things right that's not the point of the pod so I'm not going to get too much into that so when i see images like that it you know i'm one of those people that it gets me in the feels so i'm automatically on the side of the na'vi and the people of pandora to be like hey fuck these people but then you see later on in the film like when they establish a few military bases it's just like this tarmac concrete landscape where they've just destroyed all the foliage and just set up this, like, cold, harsh brick and steel. And it's like... Then when you see how the Na'vi live, like, in the trees and with all the foliage, and you're like, oh, that just looks so much nicer. So the film does a really good uh, point of, like, sort of establishing, like, the destroyers and then the sort of peaceful side. And if you're like me, you're naturally then more inclined to be on the, like, hero side as opposed to the sort of villainous side. Um, But that's, like, the... That's the overarching aim of the humans and and the human military is to conquer, destroy, take over. Whereas the inclusion of uh, Colonel Miles, I think, then, is really important and really powerful because sometimes with these large blockbuster, huge-scale films it's almost, it's almost easy to not care. <laughs> like when, when something is on us, it's like when someone says to you, can you imagine a hundred pound or or something like that? You're like, yeah, I can imagine a hundred pound. That's like a tangible thing. But when someone says, can you imagine having like 10 million pound? It's the number is almost too big for you to comprehend it in a tangible kind of way. You know, if someone's like, I'll oh, think of a billion of, of this thing you know imagine having like a billion chopsticks you can't quantify that in your head so when something is like so large scale it's almost difficult to to give a shit sometimes basically so when you have something scaled down to essentially be being between two people you've got colonel miles and jake sully And the whole sort of arc and storyline between those two is Colonel Miles wants revenge on Jake Sully. That's it. That's all he wants. You were responsible for my death. I mean, yeah, Nateri shot him, which he later finds out. And then he sort of marks her for revenge as well. And he figures out that Jake Sully has a family, so he marks them to be under that equation of revenge. But when you boil it down to its truest sort of decimal point, it is him getting revenge on Jake Sully and that really simple small scale level of of storytelling m- makes the overall narrative and and the 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 risks and the sort of um what what's the word not scale the stakes it makes the stakes of the movie that much more um you know tangible and relate maybe not relatable but easier to invest in from an audience perspective so you're like You actually kind of start giving more of a shit. Um, So I'll go back to what I was going to say. So because of that revenge thing, uh, Jake Sully and his family are basically like, look, these uh, this this forest tribe that they live with aren't you know basically everyone from the first movie. They aren't going to be safe as long as Jake and his family are there. So to protect those people, they leave and they find a new tribe. They find one of the water tribes. Uh, and what I really, really like is it's not just, you know, this the exact same Na'vi just by a lake or in the sea or whatever. They've literally, like, changed their style, as in, like, their, the design of these uh, Na'vi and these sort of alien creatures. You know, they've given them sort of, like, almost kind of webbed forearms that are a bit like a fin, but they still have dexterous protrusions that's a fancy way of saying fingers their tails are thicker and broader and a bit more like kind of like a a sea snakes tail um yeah just like little things like that Their, their shoulders are a bit more slumped so they're a bit more like aerodynamic through the water would it be aerodynamic or would it be like aqua dynamic that's a question for someone with a larger brain than i um yeah so i just, I just like that I, I really appreciate like character design and especially when you're talking about like creatures and aliens and, and things like that I, I really appreciate that kind of stuff like star wars has always done it to a really high standard um even since disney's taken over that's something that disney has absolutely nailed with star wars is designing and introducing new creatures or new droids even stuff like that um so i, I really appreciate that and that and avatar one and two are Littered with insanely cool, you know, sea creatures, different aliens, different insects, even different plants or coral reefs and stuff. Like they're just everywhere. I was watching it like, fuck, whoever's imagination came up with all this shit is amazing. It's just good shit, really good shit. Um, moving on. Oh yeah, so uh, as I mentioned, Sully has um, his family, family of Sully's, Um, and all. By the way, all those sort of like uh, child actors and stuff that play his his kids and all that they they're all really good. They, I think, with with stuff like it's like what Tom Holland spoke about with playing Spider Man is like when he's got the mask and everything on, he almost has to like act a bit bigger with his gestures and stuff because obviously you can't see his face so you can't really see like him emoting with his eyes or in acting we have basically a triangle of emotion in your face. It's um, it's your eyes to your mouth kind of thing. Like those, just those two things on their own can show you so, so much without needing to do a lot. But because he's masked up as Spider-Man, he has to gesticulate a lot and be a bit bigger with his arms and and his physical reactions to stuff. Like, instead of just being like, whoa, he has to kind of be like, whoa. Do you know what I mean? For those just listening, I moved a lot when I said, whoa, the second time. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think with, with stuff like motion capture, um, there's almost like a, a license or an expectation even sometimes from audiences to sort of give the the movement of the actors a little bit more um freedom of expression and i think all those the the child actors and everything do it really well actually to be fair even the kid who plays spider which is the colonel's son uh, where well, he's a he's a full human he's he's really good in it as well uh, and they they all the kids get dealt some pretty like juicy material to wrap their heads around like some pretty high stakes stuff you know could be like Losses of loved ones uh, could be like being seconds away from death and having to like plead for their life. Um, could be begging for someone else's life, fearing for their life. There's a lot of life. <laughs> you know, they, they, all, they all get handed some pretty um, juicy material to, to get around and, and they all do pretty damn well with it. So fair play to those child actors. Um, I see child actors. I think I'm pretty sure they're all like you know, late teens now. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like it's just it's good to see young actors up and coming, basically, because we've all seen instances where a child actor or a teen actor has done something and you're like, maybe maybe take a few more classes. That was really bitchy to say, but you know, is what it is. Um <clears throat> yeah, no, anyway, about his family. Uh the film kinda ends up being like half this epic blockbuster and half this kind of, like, coming-of-age story, you know, like, not quite like the Goonies in the sense that they're on an adventure, or, like, E.T. or whatever, but you know those kind of, like, those young adult movies where you have, like, a group of kids coming together, and, like, sometimes they're squabbling, and then they realize they have more similarities than differences, and they work together, and, you know, they learn a lot about themselves, like, they are they learn to... Take control of their courage and stop being afraid, and they learn to do the right thing and X Y Z. It's just, I, you know, I feel like every kid grows up watching films of that ilk. So I'm, I'm very happy to, you know, see a good coming of age story every now and then. And then when it's blended in with a, you know, an epic sci-fi blockbuster like Avatar, it's just, it's a really nice combination of things, you know. Um. Ah uh, yeah yeah yeah. So you know, I I mentioned in the last pod, um, but one of the things I really love about Avatar is the that Awa entity I was talking about. Did I talk about that already on this one? Um, yeah, yeah, I did. So Sigourney Weaver via Awa, the the entity becomes uh, the well tries to transfer into the avatar, same as Jake Sully, um, and then she has this immaculate birth, um, and basically by watching this film you're like, okay, so it literally was just Awa, the the um the 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 godlike entity uh birthing or, you know, bestowing some sort of life creation within um Sigourney Weaver's character. Because the Kiri, the sort of younger child Sigourney Weaver, she um basically has this connection with with the world that no other of the Na'vi do, you know, like she can see things and feel things and even communicate and manipulate, not manipulate in like a uh, a cruel way, but like when she's underwater, there's like a school of fish and she's like twirling her arm around and the fish are moving in tandem with her arm movements and things. And then it ends up, there's a, a real um, on the nose moment, not on the nose in a bad way, but it is a real on the nose moment right near the end of the film when the big conflict starts happening where they're being chased underwater by the these like evil guys in a a small sort of two-man like submarine pod type thing and um they go past these like i don't know what type of coral reef plant thing it is but it's um kind of like a venus flytrap in a way and she basically uses that to like trap the submarine and crack the glass, and then as the divers are swimming out, she uses them to like uses the plant coral things to like grab them too, and everyone watching is like, how the hell did she do? Because it's literally like someone using the force to manipulate it. It's really cool. I really like that inclusion, um, you know, because it's really spiritual, you know. So it sort of shows a a nice connection between like. The plant life and and the the air that we breathe and the water and everything like that it just shows that it's more than, well, I'm not I'm not gonna get too far. In. This isn't a a fucking sci-fi, sorry, not sci-fi. This isn't a spiritual, um, you know, Terence McKenna style podcast. So I'm gonna try and not go down that rabbit hole, otherwise people would just be, you know, dropping out. Um, yeah, but one of, one of the big things I do love about Avatar is how much they. It, it very much adopts that kind of native american or indigenous folk attitude to caring for the world that we live in um and that's something i've always been more like um inclined towards than a lot of like western living and stuff like don't get me wrong western living's great in in many respects like my tv or being able to do a podcast with this microphone and and xyz but just their sort of respect of the land and animals and things like that um that you find a lot more in sort of you know either native cultures or indigenous cultures and that kind of thing like you know native americans or the maoris of uh polynesia and that kind of stuff it's always i don't know i feel like i feel like they understand a lot more about life and not necessarily the meaning of life but just life-in-the-grand-broad-strokes terminology that um, Westerners have either forgotten or not learned or been turned away from by certain either religious or capitalistic institutions. Um, But Avatar really leans into that with the Na'vi Um, and then, in turn, kind of has a vegan agenda. Like... Mm -hmm okay so there's there's these characters there's there's these mythical beings in they're not even mythical there's these ridiculously cool beings in avatar 2 called the tukun which are essentially like whales they're just these cool ass Pandora style whales uh, and they have a really deep meaningful connection with uh the water tribes of the navi right They call them their spirit brothers and sisters. So the kind of idea is like you form a connection with one of them and then that's your homie for life, right? Not in a weird sexual way, that's just your homie, you know? Uh, And then there's this group of um, humans that hunt them down and harvest them for the the tiniest part of them. It's like this weird kind of um, membrane or sap or something that they get. Uh, which they say stops the human aging process, so is in turn ridiculously valuable to humans. Um, However, it is literally like 0.5%, if that, of the animal in in and of itself. And uh, Spider, his character even... Because he he basically gets captured by the colonel and, and ends up sort of having to stick with them for most of the film, so... Um, he doesn't join their side, but he's with them, and he sees the harvesting of one of them, uh, one of these whales. You know, they 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 like track it down in this really like, it's a really heartbreaking scene. Um, and this is something James Cameron does really well. Like when there's a scene where one of the kids is being chased by this like shark character, it's really intense. The uh, show the shark creature, not character. It's this big, huge like megalodon style shark trying to get him. And he gets saved by one of the two coon, and then he forms a bond of the two coon. Um But, yeah, like, that scene's really intense and dramatic. And then when he does a scene, like, the 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 whaler people hunting the two coon, it's really, like, heartbreaking and difficult to watch and dramatic and that kind of thing. So James Cameron's really good at knowing what style each individual scene is it's almost like he's been doing this for like 30 40 years and and is at the top of his game in his craft who would have thunk it eh um but no he is it's really good and it's quite difficult to watch um but then when they kill it and they harvest it spiders like hang on is that all you're taking from this animal you're not going to use the whole animal and that's really in keeping with um what i at least think i know about uh, Native American culture in the sense that, like, if they would kill uh, a buffalo, they wouldn't just, like, take meat to eat. They would also skin it and use the skin pelts for blankets or, um, uh, I don't want to call them t- teepees, but they're, like their huts and things. They would use it as the material for their huts. They would melt down the hooves to make glue. They would use the bones to make, you know, tools or arrowheads and things like that like it's literally full usage of the animal because you have to respect that this animal exists uh in and of itself and has its own life its own personality its own sort of like um you know uh, wants and needs but if you're going to end its life for your own wants and needs you have to understand that there is, is there for an exchange of you know energy and almost like a kind of uh, a currency you owe it to that animal to make best use of it instead of just killing it for like a trophy or, or one small thing uh maybe I didn't word that very well, but hopefully you understand what I mean um and I feel like avatar leans really heavily into that kind of uh mindset um and dude I la- okay this is big this is not a big spoiler but it's a spoiler, but I've already said there's gonna be spoilers throughout the whaler gets got by one of the whales and mate. I was rolling it was so funny because he gets the most hardcore death in the whole film and people next to me and around me were laughing as well so I'm not just sat there like some kind of psychopath like ah death but <laughs> it was funny because straight away I was like fuck these people I hate these characters these are awful people wailers fuck these people and then he gets got hard and I was like <laughs> it was really really satisfying so i'm glad that they put that in there um ah who doesn't love a good epic set piece battle right um and this is something that like you know I, i mentioned earlier in the pod that like when when there's like a really large scale thing like in terms of the stakes when the stakes are too large scale it's almost hard to give a shit and that's kind of partly been my issue with some of the like MCU movies or some of the DC movies where you're like hang on what are we fighting for the destruction of the universe okay well that's really hard to comprehend so can we scale it down and then also you end up getting all these like um like these henchmen or like these these you know other armies for people to fight like I I'm not sure who the fuck Batman and Superman and everybody were fighting in the Justice League movie, just these weird alien creatures and that. I'm like, yeah, they, they work for Doomsday or Um Muggins with the Hammerhead. Uh, Alright, yeah, sure. Fuck knows who the Avengers were fighting in the first like Avengers movie and and pretty much all the rest of them, apart from the Ultron ones, that one that kind of made sense. But oh Thanos' dudes, he's just got some people, has he? Just got some henchmen. You, it sort of becomes hard to, like... It, they're just laying waste to all these, like, countless and countless fucking enemy troops. You're just like, all right. Whereas in something like Deadpool, the first Deadpool movie, or even the second Deadpool movie, you know, the first one, yeah, like, yeah, he's laying waste to loads of, like, um, henchmen and stuff, but the end set piece is he's just scaling and like infiltrating and assaulting a a a docked kind of battleship or something it's some sort of large boat I can't remember now might just be a container ship uh to save his girl that's it so he's not like fighting on a planet or something he's just like this is it and in the second one he's like just just fighting in like a school or a mental asylum or something like that against a few uh like enemies and like that's that's the stakes. That's it. And it's to save uh, that kid. So when something is scaled down a lot. It's almost easier. And it you have to have a better attention to detail. As opposed to it just being like huge. Like what, one of the latest X-Men movies. The Apocalypto one. They're just fighting in some street somewhere. And like Magneto's throwing all this metal at him. And it's just like a continuous stream of CGI metal. And initially you're like oh okay cool he's throwing this metal at him and then it just goes on for ages it just goes on for ages and ages and ages and other stuff is happening in the background and the foreground and magneto's in the background just throwing all this metal at him for ages and ages and ages and And it's just super fucking lazy i don't know if i'm illustrating my point very well um but so with avatar 2 they have the whaling ship that they kind of fuck up a little bit and it they can't drive it anymore because Spider's fucked up the controls on the inside and they've attacked it from the outside and it's kind of run aground and it's kind of half-sinking and it's fucked. But Colonel has some of, his, some of Jake Sully's family as hostages, hostages, so they have to attack it. And then that becomes the end set piece. So if you don't know what a set piece is in film, it's normally when there's like a big... Relatively large scale piece of scenery, um, where or like a location, um, you know, where shit goes down, you know. So, in the film, like, there will be blood, for example, the huge oil well that they have, the one that like blows up and deafens his kid and stuff like that, that would be considered a, a set piece, um, yeah. And it was a really because, like I say, they could have just had, like, some enormous large-scale fight, a bit similar to the first Avatar, um, which, you know, it, it's it's good because they... In the first Avatar, if you don't remember, they ha- they're focusing on attacking, um, like, one of the sacred trees or something. That's where, like, all the enemies are heading towards with their bombers and stuff. They're all heading to that place to bomb it. Um, but the fight takes place in this huge area around it as the navi are trying to stop them from doing that so it's a bit larger scale and sometimes when something is really large scale like that you're like this could be anywhere these could be anybody but when you bring it down and scale it back to just we're in one location and there's one aim for each side so the colonel's aim is he's got his hostages there there is bait they're there as bait for Sully. He wants to kill Sully. Sully's aim is I'm gonna get my kids back, and if I have to, I'm gonna kill that guy. Such simple stakes, and it makes it so much juicier in that way because it's almost like it's not it's not overstuffed, you know. Um what else we got? Oh, big spoiler alert, ready? One of Jake Sully's kids dies and I thought that was really brave to do and I applaud it because too often in films, um, you know, central or important characters just have like plot armor or are completely invulnerable, you know, because they're too valuable or, or whatever. You know, um, which I think is as well why shows like Game of Thrones initially until the last season or two were so uh, popular and everything is because nobody was safe. You know, there was always a, a big chance that somebody that you loved was going to die. Um, so I thought that was a really bold, brave move. And then it also gives a hell of a lot more uh stakes or reason or emotional investment into the third avatar movie because james cameron's already said he's going to do like i think four in total or maybe five he either said he's going to do four in total or four sequels meaning five in total so either way the fact that um the colonel was responsible for the death of his firstborn son loads up jake sully with a fucking oh i'm gonna kill you kind of attitude going into the third one, whereas the colonel already wants to kill Sully for reasons previously established. Uh so yeah that was that was really as as heartbreaking and sad as it was, it was um a really smart narrative decision on Cameron's part. Um where are we? Oh a, a few oh yeah I will say Zoe Saldana's character was massively underutilised in this one. Um, she's a fantastic actress, uh, really top, top tier. And I think she's, is she the only person to be in the two highest grossing films of all time being Avengers Endgame, I think, and the first Avatar, <laughs> like she's in both. <laughs> so she's probably just with those two films alone and more in the box office than most other actors. Um, yeah, I do feel like her character was a little bit underutilized, uh, unfortunately, in Avatar 2. But hopefully that changes in the sequels. Um, oh, and I mentioned about uh, like the shark scene where it's going after one of his kids, being really high, st- high stakes and adrenaline pumping, um, and the the whale hunting scene being really heartbreaking or like the scenes where you've got the, wor- uh, the forest and everything being destroyed by all the fire heartbreaking. Um, but then there's a scene where it's quite a bit earlier on in the film where again, Jake Sully's kids have been cornered by, um, the Colonel and that. And this is how he gets spider, you know, within his sort of claws, I suppose, uh, yeah, they have like a sort of a hunting scene, I call it, where, I don't know if I call it a hunting scene, actually. Uh, but you've got Jake Sully and um, Nitiri sort of stalking them within the trees and like shooting them with bows and arrows out of nowhere. And, you know, it's it's really, it's really a really, really cool scene. I really like that. But my again, that's just a feedback to my point that like um, Cameron is really good at, being like, this is an action scene. This is a heartfelt scene. This is a coming of age, you know, um, the kids are having fun type scene. Like, he's he's really good at, at you know, hammering and absolutely nailing what the, um, the theme of that particular scene is. So, fair play to him. He gets a gold star. Um, <clears throat> the quality of the underwater graphics. Uh, I, I've mentioned already, like, the graphics and stuff throughout this film are breathtaking but surprisingly unsurprisingly sorry a huge portion of it does take place you know underwater the characters are swimming around or or whatever and now i understand why you know back in like 2010 when they were talking about making an avatar sequel um cameron was like we haven't got i know what i want to do with it we haven't got the technology to do it yet and at the time i remember being like "Well, bullshit we just saw it like, you did it with Avatar 1. Why can't you do it with Avatar 2? Your technology to make this world is there. Whereas if he'd always had in his head he wanted to do, like, the water sequel and have, like, half of the film be these underwater scenes, then, um, yeah, then it, it makes sense as well. Because I remember even um, Aquaman, I think the first one with Jason Momoa, he, they, I think they were pioneering... Some kind of like underwater technology, you know, where you have the actors underwater or if they're CGI underwater, you can like get their hair to flow as if it is underwater and all these kind of it, I remember it being like a really big te- technological leap. And uh, James Cameron is one of those directors like George Lucas, the Star Wars guy, uh, if you don't know who will um, just. Always look for the new technological advancement within film. So, like, if you know, he he may have been waiting for us to get to this sort of point uh, with film technology where these scenes can look as good as they do because they look brilliant. They look so good. It's just uh, make go if you haven't seen it, go see it in in IMAX three D. It's fucking astounding. Um. Yep. Uh what's this wailing scene heartbreaking yeah spoken about that already um okay that's pretty much on my notes um that was a lot of all around the houses chitter chatter but this is called chatting script uh so what do you expect um i really enjoyed it uh i'll i'll get back to doing some analysis podcasts at some point um Oh, actually, something I didn't say as well with um, when you're filming like large-scale blockbuster stuff, something that Cameron does it's in other like blockbuster films as well, but something that is really cool is he does these kind of like half-zoom rocky things. so like the, the shot that stands out to me was when that the whaling ship like sort of comes from behind uh, some other scenery you know, it might be like a mountain cliff edge that goes into the sea or something. And the whaling ship sort of moves around behind it. And the camera, so it's, it's a huge wide shot. And the camera sort of like half zooms in and then like rocks a little bit as if it's, you know, being held by like someone as opposed to on a fixed rig or whatever. Um, and that like being a wide shot and then half zooming in, but staying still really wide combined with the rockiness of it the rockiness kind of mirrors the fact that that machine whaling boat ship thing that we're looking at is moving like the movement of the camera is a mimic of the movement of that thing so the audience is sub subconsciously made aware that there's you know a degree of movement happening but that kind of thing I don't feel like I'm waiting it well but fuck it um and then like the half zooms and all the wides and everything's just helps you understand like the the scale of of what we're dealing with. Um but there's just a few little like kind of cool not not like trick shots because that implies they're I don't know somewhat like cheating or dishonest or something. But that's that's not what I mean. But there's it's, there's just really cool um uh, kind of uh, tricks, fine tricks, yeah, why not? That you can use um with, with blockbuster filming. Um at least I think I've never filmed a blockbuster film. These are just observations. Um yeah so that was the pod um hope you liked an hour of me rambling about avatar uh please do rate review subscribe to all the places that your ears and eyes view or listen to this podcast and follow the social media twitter and instagram at chatting script uh yeah give me a follow like my stuff um Yeah, that's it. And Oh yeah, just a reminder again, I'm wearing this cystic fibrosis t-shirt. If you don't donate to charity and you want to donate to charity or you want to donate to a new charity, donate to the CF Foundation. Um, It would help them out. Thank you.